You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 28. You'll find this on page 937 of the Pew Bible. We're reading together verses 17 through 22 of Acts chapter 28. Hear the word of God. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know everywhere it is spoken against. There are very different ways to understand the meaning of the word hope. On the one hand, we use this word as an expression of a wish. There's no certainty. The farmer looks at his fields and he says to his son, I sure hope it rains today. Or the young girl unpacks her sister's wedding dress and she says, I hope I get married someday. Or the salesman walks out of the corporate office and he says, I really hope I get that account. And in each of these situations, the person in question expresses a wish by the word hope. And that's really all that it is. It's a wish. There's no certainty. There's only the possibility of fulfillment. We long for something to happen, but the outcome is entirely uncertain. It's a wishful desire. And that's what the man on the street means by the word hope. On the other hand, the Bible uses the word hope for a certain expectation of fulfillment. God has made promises and the believer knows that they'll come to pass. And it may be now or it may be later, but either way, God's promise will be fulfilled. That's the Christian's hope. It's firm and it's certain and it will be realized. And perhaps a good analogy is the hope entertained by an expectant mother. We have two of them right now as I speak. Maybe more, I don't know. 
The instant she knows that she is with child, she lives in anticipation of the delivery. And she can't take a step or make a move without sensing the life within. The day of birth is a way off. She can't see the baby, but she is certain of its arrival. And she must simply wait expectantly until that great day when she delivers this new life. That's her hope. It's certain and it's undeniable and there's no doubt about it. It's just a matter of patience. Interestingly, a young man in France, if he is introduced to an expectant mother, this is what he typically would say to her. I congratulate you on your hope. The expectant mother's hope is analogous to the hope of a Christian because both are firm and certain. But the Christian's hope is based upon the promise of God and redemption in Christ. It's built upon the foundation of his grace and his shed blood and his imputed righteousness. That foundation includes Christ's ongoing prayers, the Spirit's power and revealed truth, and it's supported by the eternal rock of God's sovereign, gracious power. Paul says to Titus, we are to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have this believing and confident expectation of our Lord's second coming. He's coming again. And all we have to do is wait patiently and steadily persevere by trusting in him. And I think what this does is help us understand the passage which confronts us today. Paul has arrived in Rome, as you know, where he stays by himself with a soldier as his guard. And most likely, these two are chained together so the prisoner couldn't escape. And what the apostle does is he gathers together the local leaders of the Jewish synagogue in Rome. He's allowed, apparently, to invite his friends into the house and to preach freely. And we know that it was his established custom upon entering any city to seek out the Jews first. And it was before these leaders that he made his case by rehearsing his history. He told them of his innocence and the desire of the Romans to set him free. Governor Festus said, I found that he's done nothing deserving of death. King Agrippa had said this, this man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. And he told them that his captivity was the immediate result of the Jews who sought his conviction. Circumstances compelled an appeal to Caesar in fighting the false charges, and this explained his chains. He had been wrongfully charged and imprisoned. And now the Roman Jews had heard neither of Paul nor the details of his arrest. So he calls them together because he wants to preach Christ to them and explain his imprisonment. Specifically, the apostle wished to tell them about the hope of Israel. I hope you saw that. This was the fundamental reason for his chains and imprisonment. And when he says the hope of Israel, they must have known what he meant since he makes no attempt to explain it. 
What is made plain is the immediate link between this hope and his chains. For some reason, this hope meant that he's imprisoned. Throughout his journey, he's been saying the same thing. Acts 23, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Or again, he says in 26, before Agrippa, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. It's this hope. It's the same declaration he makes three times, and he assigns that as the reason for his chains. And there are two important facets to this hope. One objective, one subjective. The object of hope is that upon which his certainty is grounded. Why are you so certain, Paul? That's the object of hope. The other is the exercise of hope, which is his personal embrace of the object of hope. Jeremiah 17 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. He's the object of hope. Matthew 12, 21, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. That's their exercise, their embrace of the hope. And I believe Paul is using the word hope with both of these aspects in place. One is objective, one is subjective. He's on trial because of Jesus Christ and his own Christian expectation. And this is his hope, and for this he's in chains. And of course, the question that we must ask ourselves this morning is whether or not this is our hope. You see, any other hope is vain. There is no hope apart from Christ. Let's be honest. I'm sure you're familiar with Paul's description of the unbeliever in Ephesians 2. I'm sure you've heard it many times. Let me quote it. Separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The greatest event in the history of the world was the visit of Christ. He is the eternal Son of God who assumed humanity and died on a cross. He accomplished redemption because there was no other way of salvation and there is no other hope of redemption. And what can be said of a person who is separated from Christ having no hope? He must stand before God as he is in himself. With all of his demerit. He'll have no excuse and no advocate and no intercessor to plead for him or her. And there will be no refuge whatsoever. He's without Christ, and therefore, Paul says, he's without hope. And that's why it's important for us to examine our hope, because what is our expectation? You see, if our hope is sound, then such scrutiny will do it no harm. But if our hope is somehow unsound, then our self-examination will expose it, right? That's a good thing. It'll show that we need to make a change and trust in Christ as our only hope. 
So with some help from one of my heroes, J.C. Ryle, we're going to consider six marks of a sound hope. First, for a hope to be sound, it must be invisible. Can't be observed. Isn't this what Paul says in Romans 8? Now hope that is seen is not hope, he says, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. As Christians, we are waiting for a full and complete salvation on that day. We've not realized its fullness yet, which is why we hope for it. Because of God's promise, we have absolute certainty that it will be fulfilled. But we can't see it. We can't touch it. We can't observe it with our eyes. It can be seen only by faith and enjoyed in principle only through hope. So we're like Abraham in many ways, who was willing and hoped to believe against hope. It's invisible. But then secondly, for a hope to be sound, it must be understandable. You gotta make sense. Peter says, in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. A reason for the hope. It's reasonable and explicable and understandable. You know, sometimes I hear people speak about hope in terms that I don't grasp. Recently at a funeral, I heard somebody say this. This is a celebration of life as we give the deceased a send-off to heaven with a smile. But wait a minute. The deceased never professed faith in Christ, never repented of sin, never even attended church. So on what solid basis can I build any reasonable hope for his salvation. You see, for a hope to be sound, it must have a reasonable explanation. An unsound hope is based upon nothing but frothy wishes and unrealistic expectations. You know as well as I do that we are by nature children of wrath. Our standards teach us that we are bond slaves to Satan. And the only way of being delivered out of that is through faith in a crucified and risen Savior. That's the only way. By his life, he fulfilled the law. By his death, he satisfied the demands of justice so that the law cannot condemn the believer and justice cannot punish the believer. He's accomplished salvation. And that makes sense. You may not like it, you may disagree with it, but it makes sense. I can explain that because it is true I have certainty about my salvation. And therefore, I can give a sound reason for the hope that is within me. I can show you why. I can show you on what ground and for what reason I have this hope. So the question is, can you give the same reason? What makes you think that you're delivered from the wrath to come? 
It's an honest question. What makes me think that I'm delivered from the coming wrath? At a funeral? At your funeral? Will the mourners have good reason to believe that you are in heaven? They don't know for sure, but there may be good reason for thinking so. We're not all theologians, to be sure. Many of us, especially children, have weak understandings. But to have a sound hope, we must explain to some degree the reason for that hope. And don't let yourself be lulled into complacency with an unsound hope, like, I hope everything turns out okay. I hope God's going to be merciful in my case. I hope I go to heaven. There has to be a reason. It has to be understandable. You know, in one of the characters in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read it, you'll know what I'm talking about. One of the characters there was named Ignorance. And when Ignorance came to the Jordan, he quickly passed over without much difficulty. And that was because he was ferried over the river by the ferryman whose name was Vain Hope. When ignorance reached the other side and he ascended the hill and he came to the gate, he expected to be admitted. But the gatekeepers asked, Whence come you? What would you have? And he said, I have ate and drank in the presence of the king who taught in our streets. The gatekeepers asked him for his certificate, but fumbling around, he couldn't find one. And they say, have you none? And he remained silent. So they went and told the king. And as Bunyan writes it, the king refused to see ignorance and commanded him to be bound hand and foot and to be taken away. And it was at that moment that Christian said to himself, then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven as well as from the city of destruction. You see, the hope of ignorance was vain. It was empty. It was unreasonable. There was no reason for ignorance to expect anything else but judgment. He was speechless when he was asked why he should be led into heaven because all he had was a frothy wish. How about you? On what is your hope based? Is it a hope that you've embraced? Is it reasonable? For a hope to be sound, it has to be invisible, it has to be understandable, but thirdly, it has to be biblical, based upon the word of God. Psalm 119, the the David the psalmist says, Remember your word to your servant in which you've made me hope. So for any hope to be truly sound, it has to be drawn from the word of God. The believer ought to be capable of explaining his hope from the Bible. It's a confidence built upon something that God has promised. We talked about songs and high school, Sunday school. And one of the reasons that we like to sing the ancient hymns, not just because we're chronologically snobby, they're theologically rich. It teaches us that our hope is drawn from the word of God. 
has nothing to do with what man has to say, has everything to do with what the Lord has said in his word. Because when God says something, it's as good as done, and there's no question. He never lies. He cannot deny himself. And therefore, the apostle Paul bids the Romans to bank on the divine promises in Romans 15. He says this, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You know something, there are so many in our day, tragically, whose hopes are not biblical. They hope for heaven, as we all do, I think, but they have no scriptural reason on which to build. It's nothing but a wishful desire. Listen to what the wise man says in Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. If I trusted an imposter who deceived me a hundred times, you'd say I was foolish. If I relied upon a traitor who repeatedly proved himself false, you'd say that's the height of folly. Well, the great imposter and vile traitor that has deceived and betrayed us is nothing else than our own hearts. You know what I'm saying. The person with an unbiblical hope who is trusting in his own mind is deceiving and betraying himself. He is simply trusting in his own mind. And Solomon says he's a fool. Bildad that Elder Gilliland read earlier I think he's right. His confidence is severed and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it doesn't stand. He lays hold of it, but it doesn't endure. So when the sun is setting on your life and mine, and that sun is going to set, when the sun is setting on your life and mine, the only basis for a sound hope is the Bible. This world and all that is in it is fading away, and it will not and cannot last. But the word of God stands fast and is a sure foundation for hope. Paul says, and let me quote the King James, All the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen unto the glory of God. So let's make sure that the hope that we harbor is thoroughly and soundly biblical. So for a hope to be sound, it has to be invisible, understandable, biblical, and then fourth, Christological. Very expensive term. It's got to rest upon Jesus. We're going to refine our definition a little bit to incorporate the specific focus. Biblical is the whole Bible. Christological is Christ. It's particularly upon Christ, and we're not ruling out other truths that are fundamental to our confidence. Hebrews 11, for example, without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So for you to draw near to God, you have to believe in God's existence 
and that he is divinely gracious and generous. But if you stop there, you believe no more and no less than the devil himself. Satan knows God exists. He hates the fact that God is gracious. And so a sound hope of salvation must be more specific. It's got to be based upon Jesus as the Redeemer. This is what Paul says to Timothy when he writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Jesus Christ is the Christian's hope. All of our hope of eternal life is in him. It's focused on him and built upon him and begins and ends with him. Isn't that what Paul says in Colossians 1? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And thus, a genuine Christian hope is based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's Christological. We recognize ourselves as sinners, morally bankrupt, polluted spiritually, lost. And yet by faith, we apprehend this wonderful mercy of God extended in Christ. And we see that in Jesus, we can be reconciled to God. We can inherit eternal life and have a sound hope. That's why the Christian can look forward confidently and expectantly to the day, the final day. Jesus Christ is the foundation. That's why we use this word Christological. Any, under, any other foundation won't support the kind of hope that we want. Eternal life. Think of that. Never ending. It's hard to even embrace the concept of eternity. But the word of God is abundantly clear on this point. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So a hope that is sound is invisible, it's understandable, it's biblical, it's Christological, and fifth, it's personal. You apply it to yourself. The text that we read together in our confession this morning teaches that one of the foretastes of heaven is the hope of glory. And those who wrote this confession drew this from what Paul says about all who are justified, Romans 5. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So as a true Christian, you are conscious, self-conscious about the hope that you harbor. The hope is in my heart. It's not simply the hope of my parents or my elders or my friends it's my hope. I feel it. I experience it. I personally trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I rejoice in hope. I feel it. John Bunyan says to hope without faith is to see without eyes. And therefore, I have to have faith in Christ and trust in his blood to have a good hope. And so as we near the end of this sermon, can you say, my hope is personal. That's what we ask in our membership interviews. Is your hope personal? Do you harbor it in your heart? 
Have you experienced it in your soul? I think it's for good reason that Paul says it must be Christ in you, the hope of glory. So a hope that is sound is invisible, understandable, biblical, Christological, personal, and finally, influential. It has to impact your life. John says in his epistle, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so we discover there that hope is one of the motivations for striving to follow Christ. It's out of gratitude for so great a salvation that we seek to honor the Lord. It's the kind of hope that helps you become truthful, kind, Diligent, faithful, friendly. It's the kind of influence that a good hope will have on the life of a true believer. Do you remember the story, or I should say the parable that Jesus told? Let me read it for you. It comes from the end of his Sermon on the Mount. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You see what Jesus is saying? The person who hears Christ and practices it is like a man who built his house on a rock. He's not content with just listening, but he actually brings forth fruit. He doesn't just hear, repent, and believe. He actually repents and he believes. In the language of James, such a person is a doer as well as a hearer. And in the day of trouble, at the time of trial, such a hope will not fail him. And that's true, especially on the day he dies. He can die well. He can die with confidence. It's a hope that doesn't fail. But the person who hears Christ and does not practice is like a fool who builds on the sand. He simply listens, and perhaps he even approves. But he doesn't practice it. He vainly hopes that his attendance at church will be his ticket to heaven. Oh, he has feelings. He might even have convictions. He might even have desires for heavenly things and happiness, but he doesn't really repent or believe or deny himself or live for Christ. And in the language of James, he has a faith without works that cannot save him. And when the trials come and his hope falls flat, he'll be sorely disappointed. You know something? In closing, let me just say this. It is not going to be long before a brand new generation is filling these pews. Our turn on the stage of history will have ended and our destiny will be determined. And the things that occupy so much of our attention now will be faded away. 
And there will be nothing left for us other than heaven or hell, life or death. That's why it's so crucial that we build a hope that is thoroughly sound. Stakes are high, my friends. When it comes time for us to cross that river and ascend that hill and pass through those gates, we want to have a good, sound hope. And then, like good old Christian, we'll enter the bliss of heaven with rejoicing. And that will be something that no one within the hearing of my voice will want to miss. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises which have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for the certainty that we can entertain about our future. This is a wonderful Christian hope, and we pray that you will foster that hope in every heart and mind that is here today. We ask this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.